0: Hi, welcome to Lights, Camera, Author. I'm Jim Juno. And on December 8th, 1980, rock journalist Laurie Kay entered the legendary Dakota Apartments in New York to interview her longtime idol, John Lennon. As it turned out, it was going to be the last interview Lennon ever gave because just hours later, outside that same building, Lennon was assassinated by a 25-year-old man who shall remain nameless in this broadcast and also in her new book. And she has now written about her life leading up to that point, And from that time, how she has dealt with what might be called survivor's guilt. The book is called Confessions of a Rock and Roll Name Dropper. Laurie Kay, welcome to Lights, Camera, author.
1: Thank you. And I should tell you that the full title of my book is Confessions of a Rock and Roll Name Dropper, My Life Leading Up to John Lennon's Last Interview.
0: That's exactly true. Yes, and thank you for that. And this book, uh, it basically, I I mentioned the term survivors' guilt. Um, I'm not sure is that accurate. Well, you beat yourself up pretty well after after the uh, assassination, because you actually encountered this loser who was on the, who was on the street, wasn't he? Uh
1: yes, in front of the Dakota.
0: And he, and he struck you as, a, as an odd bird, so to speak.
1: He struck me as a creep, just a real creep who wouldn't quit bugging me and kept trying to follow me as I was leaving after the interview, asking me questions. What were you doing? Were you talking? What'd you talk about? you know, that kind of thing. And and um, I basically wanted to smack him, but I didn't. And one of the reasons that I've felt guilty after all of these years is that I didn't go to the security department at the Dakota and say, you got to get rid of this guy. He shouldn't be here. He's bugging people. And had I done that, maybe they would have been able to get rid of him. Maybe they would have called the cops or maybe they would have looked at him and seen the gun in the pocket of his coat. Which I didn't see. So.
0: But you can't beat yourself up on that. You didn't, you had no idea that this guy was going to do what he did.
1: I no, mean, of course not. But still, of course, I did my, make myself guilty for longer than 40 years now.
0: I know. And it's, it's hard to believe it's been 40, well, now 43 years. Correct. Since, since that happened. And let's talk a little bit leading up to that time because it was so much fun reading about don't you know, who checked you out astrologically is that correct <laughs>
1: yes what happened was is that she was working with her uh, astrologer who had um somebody an assistant perhaps call us on the rko team me and dave schulen the co-interviewer and um ron hummel our um engineer producer and uh Bert Keen, the um, executive from Geffen Warner Brothers Records, and ask us all our birth dates, our time of birth, because they were trying to determine when would be best to meet up with John and Yoko. And amazingly enough, given all that information, they came up with December 8th, 1980, as the best day to do it, which was ridiculous, because... John and Yoko were supposed to be in Hawaii on the and on the West Coast during that time. But instead, they stayed and waited for us to come on the 8th, which we did. And it turned out that that was such a tragic day in the history of rock and roll that that's another thing that I feel guilty for. You know, what if I'd been born on a different day? Maybe John would still be alive.
0: Yes, but that's, I'm, I know, I know what you're, I understand what you're going through. I don't know what you're going through, but I understand how you feel. And, but j- again, I got to, I mean, these type of things, they're always, they're always clear in hindsight. You know, I'm, I'm, I remember hearing a news, a news guy in New York right after John Lennon's uh, death happened. He said, I was at the Dakota. I stayed till 10 o'clock, but I had to get back. It was an ABC news guy. He had to get back to the uh, TV station for the news. But it was a football game. He goes, I could have stayed later. Maybe if I'd stayed till 1030, I could have prevented it. So it's, I mean, nobody nobody really knew what was going to happen that day. And um, I mean, I, but I understand what you're going through. Let's talk some happier times. And because because up until up until that day, up until that night, rather, John Lennon's interview went really well. I mean, he was he was having fun, him and Yoko Ono both, right?
1: Oh, they were having a great time, and of course, I was too.
0: Of course. I've never <laughs> been
1: so validated in my life as I was um, sitting right next to John Lennon on the love seat in their private office, and every time that I would say something that that John really cared about, which there was a lot of, he would say, yes, love, exactly love, that's it. And and it just made me feel so incredible, so much more incredible than I had for the bulk of my life. So yes, that was wonderful. And I felt like I had become friends with him and Yoko right off the bat, and that I'd made friends that I was gonna have for the rest of my life. And by the time the interview was over, We'd all made plans to have dinner at Yoko's favorite Japanese restaurant in San Francisco um, the next week or so when they were going to be there. So I was so excited. I couldn't wait to talk about all the things that we hadn't talked about in the interview, all of our similarities and why I felt so much related to them both. And I was very excited.
0: I can imagine. And. Tell me, when were you more excited when you got the uh, uh, Rolling Stones album off when you were when you were a teenager, or or when you met John Lennon?
1: Well, because that's me, when you
0: first started your music thing. When you did you cut school so you could listen to the radio?
1: Um, I, yes, I did. But I have to say that meeting John Lennon was just the high point in my in my life, you know, really, especially considering the outcome. But that day when I did win tickets to the Rolling Stones Nicaragua benefit concert at um, the venue they call the Fab Forum, or they called it that back then here in LA, um, it was amazing. And I basically cut classes that day to sit in the car with my friend, and this story is all in the book, of course, um, and um, listened to who uh, of all the, um, the people that had entered was going to win tickets. And I thought, well, it'd be nice if I did, you know, it'd be really great. And my name was, I believe, the second name announced. And I was so thrilled. And I got um, just overly excited. My friend, took me in uh, what was his brother's truck that he'd bothered um, to the radio station, KMET. And I went to go pick up tickets and I thought I would just be going in the office and getting the tickets, but instead they said, no, the disc jockey wants to talk to you, introduce you on the air. So I went in, I was so excited to be in the DJ booth and I said hello and told him my name and he asked my age. And then he looked at me and he said, Lori, really, with a voice like yours, you need to be on the radio. And I was so excited. I realized, oh, my God, he just spelled out my career. And um, that's basically one of the major things that ever happened in my life.
0: One of the things, the happy times that your your life is so full of events. Um, You got the, the people you have met. It's almost it's almost like watching watching somebody go through life with the greatest bit of luck I've ever seen. I know it's a lot of hard work that goes back behind that luck that happens. But you were, you were at, a, what was it, Woodstock, I believe, that you met Jerry Garcia or a music festival?
1: Right. Where I met him was at an Iggy Pop concert in uh, San Francisco, at uh, at a very small club. And um, I was not a Grateful Dead fan at all. In fact, Bill Graham had been trying to give me Grateful Dead tickets for months since I started working at KFRC, the radio station there, Top 40 station. And um, I just refused because I didn't want to see them. I wasn't into them. And so there I was seeing Iggy Pop and some creepy guy kept coming up to me and saying, What's this about punk? What are you doing here? Who likes punk? Who wants to see it? And I started being really nasty to him. And um, my date that I was with couldn't believe I was being nasty to somebody and took a good look at him and then said, Lori, don't you know who that is? And I said, no, he's just some creepy, creepy guy who's bugging me. And he said, well, take a good look at him. And I did. And he had a problem with one of the fingers on his hand. And I said, uh, is that something I'm supposed to recognize? And my date said, yes, that's Jerry Garcia. And I immediately felt terrible. I felt guilty. And I turned to apologize for being nasty to him. And he had already walked away. So uh, I never had to, but um, I wish I'd been able to.
0: Was punk rock the music that you really liked when you were, when you were, let's just say younger
1: uh yes i mean when when it came out i was incredibly into punk and that's why two of the incredible interviews in my book that i talk about um ramones my very favorite punk band and um as far as new wave talking heads another oh yeah. incredible band love them both and i um quote them both quite quite a bit in my book. And my book, of course, features so many details and quotes and amazing impressions from so many awesome interviews that I was able to conduct and meet up with all these great musicians. It's, It's just been incredible. You know, everybody from former Fab Four members, George Harrison and Paul McCartney plus Beatles producer George Martin, Beatles Idol, Little Richard, and tons more of my favorite artists and bands over the years. Everybody from David Bowie to Mick Jagger. Like I said, the Ramones, Talking Heads. I mean, you name it, I got to meet them or talk to them. It was incredible.
0: It's incredible also that that it seems like music... When I was in college I was I was heavily into the uh, punk scene also with Susie and the Banshees. You wouldn't look at it, you wouldn't know by looking at me now but I used to be cool. Okay? <laughs> and uh, the uh Susie and the Banshees or Sector 42 I, I think that was one of the groups of uh, Jim Carroll Band was one of the groups that we that we listened to a lot. Um do you think that do you think the music changed though in 1981 with the with the advent of MTV?
1: Uh, no doubt, because there were a lot less music videos from the people that I was incredibly into. Um, Another of my favorite bands that, unfortunately, I did not get to interview, but I was always into Patty Smith. Oh, and, yeah. And especially Lenny Kay um, in her band, who, no, I'm not related to, even though we have the same name. But because we have similar names, we um, got to know each other because we were actually neighbors who lived very close to CBGBs in New York uh, in the eighties. So um, I got a lot of his mail and a lot of his phone calls, and uh, ended up becoming friends with him. He's just a really cool guy and really talented and uh, a great writer too.
0: You mentioned the Talking Heads, of course, with the great David Byrne as lead singer. But see, I always did like the Tom Tom Club. With with the offshoot of of the Talking Heads,
1: well, Chris France, mm-hmm. co-founder of the Tom Tom Club, uh, is amazing and um, and somewhat of a friend of mine still, all these years after the interview that we did back in uh, nineteen seventy seven. And not only that, but he wrote an amazing comment about my book that's on the back cover. So that was always cool too.
0: That's part of the reason I mentioned it. When you, when you decided to write this book, um, was it a hard decision, because uh, because you you were going to be reliving a lot of a lot of traumatic ex- um, experiences?
1: Well, yes, it was very hard. But I had always planned to. It just took me so long. It took me well over forty years, because there was no way that I could get rid of the guilt and make the time to to put it all together and all of that. And also something I realized while considering writing my memoir all these years was that unless you've kept a daily diary and written down what goes on in your life every day of the year, which unfortunately I never did, Mm -hmm. lifetime memories can be really hard to come back to, especially the older that you get. And, uh, you know, so that had a lot of effect, too. And another reason that I took a long time to write my book, aside from the guilt and being really busy with my uh, career and TV production, you know, working night and day, full time jobs and freelance uh, every day of the week, every night of the week as well, um, was that I didn't want to insult or embarrass my mother, which I knew I would have to, because I would be talking about being the product of a dysfunctional family upbringing. So one of the reasons that I waited until 2020 to write my book was not only had my mother passed, but also the pandemic came, and suddenly there was no more TV production work. So I had time, I could sit down and start writing, and I did.
0: You know, you mentioned that you know it, you waited until your mother passed away, and and I understand it was it wasn't the best up, I don't want to say best upbringing. It wasn't the wasn't the most peaceful upbringing that you had. Um, but was writing the book a cathartic experience? Because I remember I was watching one of your other interviews, and that was asked of you.
1: Yes, I would say it was because. Even going through the worst experiences in my life, I still thought of the good experiences around them, which helped a lot. And it just made everything so much more easy to remember and easy to talk about and just happy to be able to tell people. And as I tell people now, you know, I didn't write my book thinking, oh, yeah, I want to make money. That's not why I wrote the book. Mm -hmm. I wrote the book. Because, oh yeah, I want people to know my story. I want them to know about how I grew up and what it was that got me into my career and what my career was like when I did get into it. And really, the reason is because of my dysfunctional family upbringing, that's what took me into music as early as it did when I was a toddler, because that was my escape.
0: When the guy said, when the radio disc jockey said, You know, you should be in radio. It was a, was that a, a, I know it was a light bulb moment for you. You mentioned that earlier, but really, did you, did you at that point think I'm going to make a career out of this?
1: Well, it was B. Mitchell Reed, Uh the jockey known as the Beamer, who was (laughs) quite no doubt my favorite on KMET because not only did I listen to him all the time, but he had aired David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust Mm -hmm. tour special in LA um, that was at the Santa Monica Civic uh, previously. And I just, I was just so into him. And the fact that he heard my voice and thought that that meant that I should be on the air uh, made me so excited. And I didn't really think that I would be a disc jockey because I felt like I was more of a writer and more interested in what goes on on a daily basis. So I, also, started thinking, hmm, I could be a newscaster, and that's how I ended up uh, eventually in journalism school at UC Berkeley. So it, it all paid off.
0: Now, recent, more recently, you've been you've been the uh, the writer the writer for Dick Clark's National Countdown.
1: That was um, just a couple of years after John Lennon's tragic passing. Okay um that was when i i started uh because uh, i got a job writing for him the weekly radio countdown show he did you know all the top songs i wrote about them and yeah. everything and that was a lot of fun and dick was so very happy with the way i wrote and this is so cool to be able to say he asked me to ghostwrite his weekly syndicated newspaper column national newspaper column so i did and that was amazing um, although, of course, I would have loved it if my name could have been on it. But even more exciting, it got me so many cool concert tickets and so many cool interviews. And, you know, it was just amazing. It uh, it got me to the US Festival. It uh, got me to all three nights of the Talking Heads when they were shooting um, Stop Making Sense. And it was just an amazing part of my life and I still regret to this day leaving Dick Clark's company when I did which I did to move to New York and the story about that of course is in my book as well
0: right not to sound creepy or anything but what was Dick Clark like was he I mean he always came across as America's youngest oldest teenager rather uh, always seemed like a nice guy um, just, you know, what was he like in behind closed doors? Uh, I don't want to say behind closed doors, but, you know, behind the microphone.
1: He was amazing. He was so kind and so sweet and so fun. He was just really fun. You know, everything he did was was great and Super cool to uh, to hang out with him when I was able to. And he was really busy because, of course, he had his TV show and, you know, a lot of other things that he was doing. And um, I should say that he also asked me to ghostwrite a book for him, which unfortunately I ended up leaving before I I did. But um, but yeah, he was wonderful. And the cool thing was, is. I got to be really good friends with him and his wife and hang out at their house. He had events and parties at his place in Malibu, and that was great. And he was just, you know, he had birthday parties at the office, too. That was fun. So he was just great to to be with. And what's also in my book is how I had met him when I was a teenager as well, um, because I ended up being in a dance contest that he had, for promos for a rock TV special that he was doing, and um, my date and I won the dance contest, so Dick Clark was really thrilled. It was it was him and and Chubby Checker and and they um they took a picture with us, and that was really great. And then years later, when I went to my interview for Dick Clark, um, he looked at me and he said. I know you. And he went to his file, and he opened the file, and he took out the picture. That My he had. gosh! Yeah, it was really great. So he's he's quite the guy. He was quite the guy. I yeah,
0: it's like right. yeah. incredible memory. Because how I just stopped to think how many people passed through American Bandstand dancing, and for him to be able to recall you like that, is just an incredible feat of feat of memory recall
1: he was a genius he was brilliant and kind and and loving and you know everybody who worked with him liked him I, I just I can't imagine anybody wouldn't so.
0: now that when you're not promoting your book what are you working on now?
1: well to be honest, I am about a hundred percent of my days and nights promoting and marketing my books whether it's doing podcast interviews Mm -hmm. um, or um, uh, press interviews, whatever, um, and uh, my website, social media, you name it, and working with my publisher. And I've also been recording the audiobook version of my book, which has been a lot of fun, but a lot of work. And that's almost done, and we'll hopefully... Be being released uh, not too far in the future in the
0: audiobook well you have i know you recorded the last interview you did with john lennon and yoko ono will the audio be in the audio book
1: um there will be bites yes
0: that's what i mean audio bites yes uh-huh. mm-hmm. that'd be fantastic do we have a do you have any uh, target date for that
1: Um uh, i don't have a date yet but uh hopefully like i said not too far away my my paperback book was just released officially on december 8th exactly the 43rd anniversary following john lennon's tragic passing yeah. and so hopefully the audiobook will you know just be within another month or so Fantastic. so and you asked what else i was doing yeah besides and i have to say I go to concerts all the time <laughs> as much as I can, and uh, and that's always exciting. And there are so many coming up that I'm very excited about as well. So
0: can you name a few that you're going to be going to? I'm just Rolling. curious
1: you know? <laughs> again, and heart again. and um you know, there, i I haven't gotten uh, tickets other than that. Um, in advance right now but um, the minute they come up I try and get tickets and I was just at an amazing show the Steve Miller band it was so oh. great they were just awesome and uh, new bands that I've seen um, La's, I really like they're great and uh, just you know there's just so much out there music wise for me to get excited about
0: well, fantastic. Well, the author's name is Laurie Kay, and the book is titled Confessions of a Rock and Roll Name Dropper, My Life, Leading Up to John Lennon's Last Interview. I got it right, right, Laurie? You most certainly did. <laughs> Laurie Kay, again, thank you for being on Light Camera Author Tonight.
1: Well, my pleasure. It's um, I'm so happy to be a part of your, your podcast, and thank you for thinking of me. And one thing yeah. I do want to say oh. is that um believe it or not, the coolest comment that ever convinced me to write my memoir actually came from John Lennon himself. And that's was after he begged me to let him autograph along with Yoko Ono the copy of Grapefruit that I would brought to the Dakota with me. And I said, of course, and I thanked him profusely, and he was thrilled to be able to sign it for me since he'd written Grapefruit's introduction. And when I told him how grateful I was, he made a point of telling me how much he himself loved it when authors signed their books for him. So I, of course, told him that when I wrote mine, I'd definitely send him an autographed copy. And he smiled at me like crazy and said, great, which made (laughs) me feel even more than great and still does to this day.
0: Oh, fantastic. Laurie, again, I'm so happy that you found time for us tonight. And I hope we can talk again real soon.
1: Me too. Thank you.